Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr. Thanks so much for listening. Um, I've actually, I've got a, a handful of emails in the past couple of weeks from people who have been listening to the podcast and saying some nice things, and I really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, if you want to get in touch, um, you can do so by uh, emailing us at podcast podcast at otherrecordlabels.com. Um, and you can also find us on Twitter at Other Songs. We have a great episode today that's really unique and, and, and exciting. But before we get to that, I wanted to tell you about uh, a podcast I was recently a part of through Breakthrough Radio. Um, and you can hear this podcast to get a little bit of background about other songs. Uh, I was interviewed for the for the for this incredible podcast, which ironically is a a great podcast uh, run by Brian at Breakthrough Radio, and um, in, and it features record labels and and some of the artists on the roster, and and they have they've been doing this for quite a long time. My episode is episode eighty, um, and uh, so yes, I did steal the idea from them, I guess. Um, but we talk about that on the podcast, and you can and you can uh, hear that. But it's a great podcast, and uh, and hopefully we complement each other. So um, check out btrtoday.com and uh, and listen to that episode just for a little bit of background on on other songs and the uh, origin of this podcast. Today my guest is Corey Rayburn um, and he is with Three Lobed Recordings. This is a really interesting label that I found that is um, uh, an underground label and they do a lot of reissues and they do a lot of uh, first-time pressings and it's a really, really unique label and they are highly respected. They've been around for a long time and um, everything they do is is uh, very well received in the, in the indie world. And so it was such an honor to talk to Corey today and he's got such an interesting story. Um, and I'm I'm so glad to have him here. Thank you for doing this, Corey. How are you doing? Doing quite well. I hope you're doing great this morning. Oh, it's it's good. It's a little chilly and snowy today, but thanks uh, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Happy to. I I, I did a little bit of research last night, and um, you're a bit of an interview veteran. There's quite a few pieces on you out there. Well, and maybe more of a product of me having been doing this for a while. Yeah. Anything else? True. True. Yeah. I, I mean, feel, I feel like I may talk to somebody like once a year or so. <laughs> yeah. Last several years. Prior to that, not even that often, probably. Well, I guess you've you probably hit a few milestones along the way. How long have you been doing this? This is year eighteen. Wow! Wow! Congratulations! Yeah, thank you. It's a <laughs> it's a weird little. I mean, the label originally started as me wanting to put some stuff out for my friends in Bardo Pond and not having any indication whether or not I would enjoy doing it. It'd be fun to do or anything else. And for something that was really originally kind of intended as a potential one-off to be mm. doing it 18 years and, you know, close to 130 catalog numbers later is a little bit weird, especially when it's not even my job. Right. So, so it started right at the beginning. It started that that you wanted to, you were a fan of a band and you wanted to release their record. Where did that, how did that thought spawn in your mind? Well, I'm, I don't, I don't play music, but I've been heavily involved in and around music scene for a while. I booked concerts in college. I did lots and lots and lots mm. of live 
recording and stuff and would pass things back to musicians as archive material or things to use for live releases, you know, or B-sides or whatever. And in just getting to know a lot of folks over time, well, and also given my, my connection with Bardo Pond came from the fact that, you know, I was in college from in the mid nineties, mm-hmm. meaning if you had any ability to write HTML code, you were, it was kind of weird because that was alien <laughs> to most <Right>. people. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, you know, Netscape came out like a month before I started college. Oh, so wow. it, was kind of, it was kind of like the dawn of the web and it was just kind of an alien landscape. And if you could help people with web stuff, that was useful. And so I put, I, that's liked, true. I liked Bardo Pond and I put together a web page for them, unknowing to them. And you know, it was kind of a fan thing and they were excited and just got to be friends with those guys over time, which would be probably apparent if you look at my catalog and the number of things I've done with them right. now. But it was, uh, you know, I'd, I'd done all kinds of other things. I'd done, you know, some zine stuff and, and you know, like booking stuff and recording stuff. And I just wanted to put a record out just to put it out, do it once. And if I liked it, great. I'd keep doing it. If I hated it, then one record's not that big of a deal. So, um, it just struck me as something I wanted to do that was in, you know, 1999 when the idea started coming to me in 2000, when the first record came out, that was still a much more, I mean, it was not quite as wide of a landscape of DIY label type stuff as there is now, but mm-hmm. that was still also pretty big in the culture at that point in time. It was not, it was not totally alien despite right. not being as print on demand as so many things are now. And were, were there labels that you were admiring back then? Did you consider yourself a label when you made that 10 inch or, or is it just, it was just about that 10 inch. It was just about that 10 inch. I mean, I clearly, you know, uh, I was really into Matador stuff, drag city, you know, mm-hmm. things along things, you know, temporary residents at that point in time, things along, along those lines had aesthetics that I appreciated and models of doing things that made sense to me. And I, you know, it was the, when, when the label only consists of one record, I'm not really sure how much of a label it is. Right. Um, did you have is, the name and the logo? I did. Wow. Yeah. And names and logos were on that stuff, but oh, at the great. same time, I just didn't, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to really expect that it's anything that's going to have legs or anything. Right when you're putting one thing out, when you put one thing out, you kind of anticipate it might be the only thing. <laughs> At what point, how many releases in did you realize this is actually a thing? I'm going to keep doing this indefinitely. A mm, couple of years in, I yeah. was, I was, I was in law school when right. the labels started. and the first release, the Bardo 10 inch came out I received the records at my apartment about a week before orientation for law school started. Oh, so wow. I, I was stuffing records and mailing things as quickly as possible. How many before sorry. school before school had started up since I didn't really know what kind of a time constraint that was going to be on me never having been in law school yeah, before. That's else. crazy. So um, the first couple of years I really only did one title or so or one or two titles a year. And those kind of tended to fall in the summer whenever I had a little more time in law school and the label really picked up more speed as far as heightened degree of releases 
once I graduated from law school in 2003. Well, so tell me about, you said it, there was a DIY scene, but obviously nothing like it is today where there's, you know, records being released every second. Was it easier to get people's attention back then? Because there wasn't, I mean, if you go to a university or a college today, you might find a dozen record labels in the dorm rooms. You know what I mean? But yeah, was um, it a little bit? I think, I think it was. I mean, to the degree, I mean, I was putting out a record for Bardo Pond, who, I mean, it was certainly not a household name per se, but at that point in time, did have a deal with Matador and did have. When my record came out, they probably had three records out on Matador with one more yet to come. Hmm. And so, you know, I was working with an artist that had an established following, maybe not the world's sure. biggest following, an established following. And I mean, it, it was easier to get attention in some ways because there was less stuff out there, but it was also harder to get attention in some other ways because the internet was still yeah. more of a nascent thing. And, you know, there wasn't, you know, you can't bomb barred people with social media when social media doesn't exist <laughs> yeah that's right well you could use icq maybe to message people exactly yeah <laughs> aim or whatever else and you know and um, but, that was more of like a print zine type era and so it really was kind of relying on you know word of mouth in some cases and you know there there, there was a little bit of a you know a, a fan presence through me having the ability of running it Web page for that band at that point yeah. in time. Oh, for did, sure. I, I did have some control over some means of communication, but you, you still had to kind of be looking for at, you, you had to be kind of looking at a Bardo Pond webpage <laughs> to, oh, know, right. to know that, you know, I had to be interested in the band in the first place to know that that was something that was there. So, oh man, I, I think, I think I've talked about this with someone else, but I remember, um, I remember the days where you used to find out about a new release through a magazine. Isn't that oh, yeah. crazy? <laughs> We're sending off and getting a mail order catalog yeah. from labels. Yeah, I remember getting from newsletters. Like small and stuff like that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's so crazy. I miss I'm, the, the people who still do very tangible physical mail presence. Is, it's, it's still very kind of exciting to me to have some things out there that still do that. And, Agreed. Yeah. That definitely hasn't died. And I mean, it's like, I, I kind of think of like in a weird way, like Amazon is like the convenience of like buying products online, but also that like old fashioned feeling of going to the mailbox and <laughs> getting something. It's like a nice hybrid, but oh, I totally, absolutely. I totally know what you mean. I love ordering from a, from a band, a tape or a vinyl and, and, and then just waiting for, I, is it going to come in three days or in 30 days, you know? Yeah. Or ever. Or ever. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you were doing vinyl. I mean, you did 10 inch in, in 1999 and 2000. Um, like, was that like an expensive undertaking? That must've been pretty daunting. Um, it, you know, I don't remember off the top of my head, the, I'd have to dig back through some invoices as to what that cost me in 2000. I mean, that was pre vinyl Renaissance. Mm -hmm. There were, there were not as many places that were options to press in the United States at that point. And then not everyone who did, who was a functioning press did 10 inches. So it was a little bit of, you know, there, there weren't as many options to do a 10 inch as there would have been a seven inch or a 12 inch. Yeah, you know, the the reasons behind me picking a tennis were kind of dumb and didn't make a whole lot of sense. But you know that also did kind of handcuff me a hair on 
on, on finding the right vendor to do the work. Oh, really? um, it was necessarily that expensive. I mean, I didn't. What were your reasons for doing 10 inch? The, the band didn't have a 10 inch in their catalog. Okay. But they had other things. Pretty, pretty simple. You know, they had every other format covered in some fashion or another. Do you have uh, uh, like, do you, is there something about it? 10 inches that you, you like as a collector? Actually, no, they're kind of my least favorite format. So yeah. it's weird. <laughs> they don't, yeah. They always are kind of like short in the rack. They don't make sense. Yeah, they're kind of they're kind of you know it's like twenty minutes of music. You're having to flip it over quicker. You know it you know, it it doesn't cost that much different to make no, than a it's twelve. True. Yeah, and everything else. So it's yeah, it was just more of a proving the lark nature of a the label in its early days. It was not necessarily a most informed decision. It was just a, a gut decision type thing. Um, <laughs> The, it wasn't necessarily that expensive. This was back in the days when, like, media mail was like a you know, not much over a dollar to mail something like this. Oh man! And the records were, I want to feel like eight or ten dollars postpaid. I don't even remember off the top of my head. Huh. So, you know, if I if I thought I could make a, they were like eight or ten bucks postpaid. I sold some wholesale. And still made a tiny bit of money that the band and I split. So it, it clearly wasn't that insanely expensive. You were just looking to break even. This wasn't like a, a way to pay for school or anything. Uh, absolutely not. The, lab- <laughs> the label is a very uh, it's a it's a low it's my it's my lowly paying second job. So right, right, right. Well, and, then, I, and I want to I want to talk about that. That there's there's more to come there um just i'm i'm so curious about the vinyl thing you know because i'm trying to think back i i think i bought my first um like vinyl i started noticing it in record stores um like new vinyl especially back in um i think maybe probably 2005 or 2006 is whenever i started seeing like sufian's records were there and some new springsteen stuff had been done and i was thinking like oh this must be for people to put on a shelf or something like i don't know why they would do this um and but i so i'm really kind of trying to picture like what that scene was like back then the funny thing about 10 inches as we're talking about it i had a buddy the other day tell me that he wished that the whole industry now this might be just a canadian problem but that the whole industry would would do away with 12 inches and everyone shifts to 10 inch because like you say, it's not that much different. The art size is not that like, not that much smaller. And the time on it is, is a, you know, a little bit of an issue, but the big thing, especially in Canada, I don't know what the, the postal service is like in, in America, but in Canada, it would be considered a letter mail. Oh, interesting. And so it would save everyone like 75% on shipping costs. Oh, wow. Like it'd be wow. huge if the whole world well, shifted. It wouldn't change that much on shipping here because, like the, the the postage rate that I mean, everyone's going to use either priority mail, which is it wouldn't save that much doing a ten inch versus okay. a twelve inch. Okay. And and media mail, it's not going to say media mail domestically is kind of cheap. So I mean, it's like three bucks for a twelve inch these days. Three bucks and like three dollars and like seventeen cents or something. Oh, I'm wow. thinking it's not going to be much it would not be less than like 275 to oh mail so the, the the difference is pretty minimal there. what does it cost for you to ship a 12 inch domestically a little over three dollars oh my goodness but then well then that's the actual freight then you add in like a mailer and everything else so you probably have about five bucks in oh okay well we're 
we're in just for the freight in it within Canada, we're between 10 and 20. 10 is a minimum. Oh. And then if I want to go out to like Vancouver, which would be the most expensive, yeah. it would be, it would probably be 18 bucks, 16 or 18 bucks. And then America <clears throat> even more. And then overseas is just completely oh, yeah. prohibitive. It's terrible. Oh yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Did not realize that. So, I mean, the plants back then in 2000, the plants were less busy, but there was also less of an audience. What What was the, like, who was buying vinyl back then? Um, I mean, there was, I mean, there was definitely an audience for, for things. I mean, you know, there were the, the new vinyl section at record stores that I would go to at that point, you know, there was like a bin or two and, and like there'd be a, maybe like a bin of, seven inches slash 10 inches and whatnot, right. and maybe some used stuff, but there wasn't a, you know, there wasn't like, you know, that period from like 90, you know, 95 to 2000 or so, you know, there were, there were a lot of the larger indies that were still doing vinyl, but you know, those are the, those are all the titles now that are like stupid expensive yeah. on discs yeah, because true. they were, because they were, they were, the edition sizes were so small. Yeah compared yeah there were there were labels who were com still committed to the format or bands that were still committed to the format but you know the audience was still a more limited audience i mean i remember as a record head you know in the mid 90s you know i would i would buy based on format depending on what was on the record like so if there was something extra on the if something extra was on the record vinyl version, I'd buy the vinyl version. If something different was on the CD version, I'd buy the CD version. Oh, okay. I, wasn't, I wasn't necessarily tracking as a, you know, 20 year old kid in the, you know, mid to late nineties, a specific format requirement. I was just, you know, if this stuff was only available on seven inch, I was buying the seven inch. I mean, huh. I was, if I was, if I was into the band and wanted the material, I would just track the material in whatever format the material existed in. Right. Right. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I'm just kind of biased. Like I, when I, I really only started paying attention to vinyl when, you know, in, in the, the mid two thousands, whenever I started collecting it myself, but I definitely, I know that it never stopped really from the, the point of the seventies or the eighties. Yeah. It never stopped. It just got, it became much, much more niche. Mm -hmm. And then, um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm. I, it's, I'm such a curious thing. Let's. Uh, I want to talk about. I want to talk about you for a sec. If you Google your label, this is really funny. Um, one of the most common things you read is how, how you, the founder, is a full are a full time lawyer. Like you that's are, correct. and I think that's such an that's such an interesting uh, story. So, what part of the day do you give to the label? Like, how does it work? Uh, I mean, the, the my days at work kind of ebb and flow as far as how busy I am at any given time. I mean, I'm usually, rel so I, as far as attorneys go, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to work in a firm with lots of like-minded folks, but since there are lots of us here, we can kind of separate out and work on kind of specialize in areas that we're happier to do work in Oh, cool. or, oh, cool. or suited to do work in. So I'm, I'm a business lawyer. I help people set up businesses, close businesses down, sell businesses, draft stuff related to, mm -hmm. you know, re read and review contracts, leases, you know, whatever else. 
Um, I can, presently, I'm working on a couple of largest transactions representing companies who are buying other companies. And so I'm actually, you know, the last couple months, I've been really, really busy. And that's going to carry probably for another month and a half or so until those transactions wrap up. Um, I mean, I've got days where I'm relatively not that hectic, but those days have not been in the last few months. Right. Um, usually when I get in the office, I'm pretty busy until the time I leave. And I usually touch at least something related to work at some point in time before I fall asleep, too. You know, I mean, it may be limited, maybe less limited. Right. So, so, you know, the amount of time and then I have a toddler and okay. um, as well, and, you know, um, you know, other, other family yeah. obligations and concerns. And so label time these days really kind of gets compacted into like, you know, 30 minute and an hour chunks when I can find them and where I can find them. Right. Uh, you, a lot of label stuff happens late at night. Once my daughter has gone to sleep, mm-hmm. uh, my sleeping habits kind of stink these days, yeah. but <laughs> yeah. so, no, so I be it. But, you know, if, I, if I'm packing up mail order stuff, it's usually happening, you know, like 1030 at night downstairs in the basement, you know, wow. <laughs> <or> whatever. <laughs> that's great. And, and that's the same time when that'd be about the same time, like, like last night or the night before when I was, uh, you know, working on some spreadsheets for some upcoming titles for later this year and, wow. you know, working on some breakdowns and stuff like that. It just happens late at night. That's when largely when this stuff happens these days. So it's, so has, so it's always been a hobby for you? Yes. But the label is, is well known. It's well respected. Um, why hasn't it become more than a hobby for you? Um, I would feel a lot of, if I ever was to flip a switch and not practice law and instead focus on the label full time, I think I would be stressed out to a certain degree, hitching my livelihood to Hmm. a media that is uh, to an industry that is intrinsically taste driven. Right. And no matter how much, no matter how quality or how good object, you know, objectively or subjectively something is, it may not find an audience. It's always fine. It's always lightning in a bottle as to whether something reaches, you know, whether something's going to catch or not. And, to you know, pay the mortgage off of tastes and whims would be very strange. <laughs> That's a good point. Has the label suffered because of this? Have you stunted its growth by just keeping it a hobby? Yeah, probably. I mean, I put out like last year, I only put out two new titles in a, in a couple of like reissuey kind of things. Uh-huh. I mean, the year before that, I put out like. 10 or 11 things. Right. Um, this year I'll probably only have three titles come out in 18. Hmm. Some of that is more of a product of, I had some distractions the second half of last year, some family stuff that was going on that made it really hard to focus on keeping some pipeline stuff going. Right for the early part of this calendar year release wise. And I also had a couple of releases that I'd kind of committed to with people that were taking a little longer to come together than expected. You know, right. so there are, I have some things this year that I thought would co- have come out last year. Oh, so, okay. yeah. And you know, I mean, you're not going to rush something to come out if it's not ready. 
Totally. So, you know, so sometimes, you know, in some ways I could probably put a few more things out, but I'm putting out a number of things that I can manage with the number of constraints that I have right now, because the, the label is entirely me. There's no one else to do anything for the most part. I mean, that's really cool. I mean, it's such a cool story. And I've read, I've read that on a, a bunch of different articles about, you know, about you. And I, and I think, you know, it's funny to think of this, you know, corporate business lawyer, uh, by day and, and then like, a uh, uh, underground record label in the basement by night. Uh, that's obviously got a, a great story to it, but I, you know, I would say the majority of, of DIY labels, people have other jobs. Yeah, absolutely. And, or wives or spouses that help, you know, help figure things out. I mean, what kind of freedoms does, does having this like stable income provide for the label? Um, well, I don't really, I have not put quote unquote personal money into the label in a while. The label is kind of just like a self-perpetuating okay. little machine. Mm -hmm. Um, the label does have a couple of credit lines that it can tap on every now and then if it meet for cash flow purposes right. and along those lines, but largely the label it operates off of its own funds and, you know, pays its own debts and, you know, everything else. That's awesome. Um, I don't, I mean, the, the flex, so, I mean, I, you know, could put money in as needed, but at the time being, I just don't, I right. guess, <laughs> you know, and. But and, even and, just psychologically, it must just to not be, like you said, you would just be too stressed out. Yeah, it would, I would, <clears throat> it would, it would change the nature of the things I put out probably. Hmm. You think you mean like more commercial stuff? I mean, I would think that I would have to give more of a thought process as to what the commercial, I mean, that's all a relative term, but sure. what the commercial prospects for something are sure. rather than it being something that I want to put out regardless of what those commercial prospects are. Mm. If I was then focused, you know, if I had less, I would either need more things out to hedge against some things not finding the proper audience or more quote unquote safer, sure bet right. things if it was a, a, a smaller size catalog to kind of, you know, mitigate those risks. Right. Well, I think that's cool. I think that, that is, that, that definitely shows a way on how the label is benefiting from, um, and the, and the fans of the label benefit from the fact that, um, you, you don't have to go down that road where you don't have to overthink things and you can do things that are a little bit more artistic and experimental. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean, I've put out records that are, you know, like 50 minute long single track guitar drum bagpipe records. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I read about that. <laughs> there's, there's only a, you know, there's, like one can, <laughs> one can only expect to get so rich off of that. So. <laughs> You don't have like a nice summer home because of that record? Negative. <laughs> so you must be a really productive person. I mean, it's likely like as a lawyer, you have organizational skills, uh, more skills, let's say, than the average band member. Like what kind of administration things do you, do you help the artists with or, or, or do you provide? I'm really good at making sure I'm, – I'm, I'm, I'm pretty on top of things and key structure and – um, I'm, I'm good at keeping records. I'm good at putting, 
collating and assembling things as needed. I pass along, you know, I'm, I'm good at accountings. I'm good at, you know, like I, I'm, I'm good at anything that I'm, I'm good at like timetables. So if, mm. if the release needs to, if there are 10 different steps that need to happen on a release prior to it coming out, I'm good at prioritizing what needs to come first and staying on top of people. Oh, that's great. As to what I need when, and I'm pretty transparent to that stuff. It's like, look, you know, if you want this record to come out on X date, here's what I'm going to need this part and this part and this part and this part. That's totally money. That I think is the, that is a huge point right there because that's something that artists don't think about. And a lot of new labels don't think about. Um, but that whole concept of like a work back schedule is, is huge. So it has, I mean, if, yeah, I mean, if someone has a date, they want to hit, Certain things have to happen along the way. There's certain things that can't be moved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely like people always view when you're six months out or 12 months out from a, a projected release date. And I struggle with this sometimes, but like artists, they just see the year as like standing still and like the year will wait for them. Like it won't be March next month, you know, <laughs> because Absolutely, I'm not ready yeah. yet. <laughs> yep. That's I awesome. Understand. Yeah, it's just it's just something you have to stay on top of or build in time sinks as to well you know we've got this at this point you know you just like this is when this record can come out because this is as quick as we can get things done i want to kind of just quickly ask you about release times and i know you do things really differently but are do you think there are, this is a question i've talked to a lot of different people publicists and i and i get answers all over the board but do you think there are better times of the year to release records do you think there's a, a an ideal time in, in in specifically for your label well there there's i i will not release things from the middle of november through the end of a calendar year because i think that's a that's bad fair time. that's, that's fair. a very bad time to release things because if you wait till the last couple weeks of november uh through the end of the calendar year you're dealing with all the weird major label things that people have waited for mm. to put as like stocking stuff or Christmas sale type items. Right. And anyone who is working on any kind of year end list has, you know, while the year isn't over, people kind of formulate their year end lists by November or certainly by early December. Totally. And, and you're just going to miss, uh, the record is going to lose a little bit of attention that it would have had otherwise. And so I just will not release things. I, I, I learned the hard, way on a couple of things years ago that just that's just not a good time to put stuff out sure. is, is the that that those those last you know six to seven weeks of the year i totally agree putting things out within a couple weeks before or a couple w like within the general vicinity of record store day probably isn't the best idea in the world either because okay. stores don't have money because mm. they're they're saving their money to spend on all the record store day stuff um so, you know, you'd probably want to put something out between, you know, mid-January and the end of March or beginning of May through the rest of the year. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't think about that. That's a good point. Um, there, I, want to talk, I want to talk about physical formats and stuff, but I, I, one of the things I read before we do, one of the things I read that you said, you said, I work with people I know and not with people I don't know. What does that mean? Is that literal? Like you only release <laughs> records from your friends or what's, what's the thought um, there? It kind of, it kind of, it has become 
even more so true the busier my work life has gotten mm. because if if I'm working with the odds of me ever of, of me getting a quote unquote demo that I'm going to put out are pretty low right because, okay <laughs> because I don't I don't have a lot of because my my schedule is usually kind of dictated about a good year out and there aren't gaps in there all that frequently and you know I kind of know what's going on and I. I just tend to work with people I know. And I, at the end of the day, I want to put out records that if I wasn't putting them out, I would be excited to buy. And that okay. takes, and that takes, that takes form in the nature of the releases. Like, you know, what's what the content is to what the records look like and how the records are presented and packaged and priced and everything mm-hmm. else. I try to you know, take all that stuff in mind and make it, something that I would buy if I wasn't releasing it. And I've been screwing around with this stuff in some fashion or another for so long now that I know a lot of folks and I'm pretty good friends with a lot of folks or, you know, passing acquaintances and, you know, know well, know people well enough to, you know, kind of know, they know who I am and how I operate and vice versa. And they may not be my, you know, some people may not be my best friend who I talk to all the time. Some people are good buddies who I talk to a lot. Sure. But it really has turned more into a nature of things where it's, it's someone who I have some kind of relationship with rather than one who I don't. I think that's interesting. And I actually, when I read that, that really struck a, a chord with me because I feel I look back on the relationships, the business relationships that I've had with people and the ones that have come out of, you know, either a demo or, um, me just seeing someone at a show. And then there, I, I feel like the, the, anytime conflict has arised, it's, it's because the business relationship didn't start with a, a friendship relationship first. It started sure. with the business relationship. Then the friendship happened, you know, I can see that. Yeah. I, one of the things about your releases, um, I get the impression that some of your records are unique projects or special collaborations. Like where do these ideas for these albums come from? Is that something unique to you? Um, sometimes yes. Sometimes from the artists, sometimes from me. Um, I, you know, I try to find ways to entertain myself creatively since I don't play music or anything. Um, and sometimes it's just a matter of, Hey, I think these, I think, think you guys would work well together or whatever else. And that's something that's, I, I like, I've always enjoyed introducing different friends of mine from different, different walks of life to each other and just kind of watching what happens, be it in the music sphere or otherwise. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's, this is something that I like seeing in records. This is something that I like seeing, uh, in performances. You know, there's, the radio station at Duke, WXDU, we've collaborated on putting together, I think it's about five or six um, day-long festivals during the Hopscotch Music Festival in Raleigh huh. over the last multiple years. And one of the fun things there has been getting people to collaborate and do you know, interesting live stuff that you know, may not happen somewhere else. And and, may have, and sometimes that leads to new relationships for them and new, you know, new avenues for them. Um, I don't know. I just, sometimes it's, 
it see the combinations seem obvious to right. me. Like, why have these people not done anything together? <laughs> you know, they've been friends for you know ten years and have you know kind of worked in and around each other. But why not express it together? Yeah, and, and you know, so sometimes it's sometimes it takes more inspiration. Sometimes it takes less inspiration to come up with some of these things. I know you've worked with um, bands that you were fans of growing up and mm-hmm. and different artists that way and um is there is part of your label um have you ever have you ever done reissues of records that you were a fan of or is that something that you would want to do is is digging back to records from the 90s that maybe never got the vinyl love from that era and reissuing well, those in the right situation that could make sense of i haven't really with the exception of a couple of Jack Rose titles a couple of years ago, I've not reissued anything that another label has put out. Okay. Um, but that doesn't mean in the right situation that I wouldn't, hmm. you know, wouldn't do that. You know, there yeah. were a couple, there were a couple of Jack Rose titles that I put out about a year and a half ago that were originally on other labels. So I'm certainly not opposed. Yeah. I've always just kind of dreamt of that i that idea for my I would just love you know thinking back to those like you know now defunct bands of my youth and, and sure. just saying like you know this this record from nineteen ninety three that no, nobody's heard of and may may it's never like, get a vinyl love you should you should look into it I mean it's one of those things where you gotta figure out who has the rights yeah is you know is there another label out there who has the rights what kind of licensing situation is there are you going straight to the band? Are you, <clears throat> pardon me, are you dealing with a label Yeah. or what, what that story is? Yeah, no, it's, it, it would be kind of interesting. And, and I, I, I guess the reality is too, is the other question is, are there enough fans out there, you know, to, or, or was it really just uh, the record just struck a chord with me back in 93? <laughs> if you do, if you do the right edition size, you know, you're always, you know, if you, if you peg the edition size, right, you'll always be fine. I mean, yeah. I that's a, that's easier said than done. But. Sure. Yeah. I, I heard, um, I heard somebody talking about reissues and how it not, I mean, obviously the licensing part of things can be really complicated. Um, but also even just the, the getting a hold of the masters that a lot of it was done to yes. tape or it was done to ADAT or that, that doesn't transfer very well. Or, or in some cases they just take the MP3s or, or, or the, you know, the low res waves and, yeah. and then fans aren't really too thrilled with that. So it's pretty complicated, I hear. Yeah, I mean, you know, you got to see what kind of raw materials you have and what kind of work you can do. I mean, you know, and you know, uh, for those Rose reissues, you know, we had a we had a you know we had different levels of masters we were dealing with. You know, one, you know, some, you know, it's a, it really all, you know, finding tracking things back to the best possible source can be time consuming. Totally. Um, you've said before that physical formats are important to you because when you were a kid, there was no such thing as a non-physical record. <laughs> uh, what do you think of where we are today with, with CDs on the way out, uh, the vinyl boom and then, and then tapes coming back? I like it. Um, I mean, you know, I, I do not issue, uh, digital releases, but I don't see anything in my catalog that would exist as a digital release only. I mean, I, I just, okay. I, you know, I like, I like physical stuff. Um, yeah. as, far, as far as music goes, cause then you've got to, 
you know, relationship with the object. And, you know, and that's one reason why you know, 12 inch vinyl records are fun is that you've got all of that room to play with as far as, you know, an artwork, mm-hmm. an artwork situation to kind of immerse yourself in and kind of get, you can't get lost in the details of, you know, a, the art file is only, only so interesting when it's like a two by two square on your phone or whatever. <laughs> it's so true. It's crazy how in a matter of 10, 20 years, it went from 12 inch by 12 inch down to 120 pixels. By <laughs> yeah, yeah I just, you know, I, I just, I just enjoy something you can kind of just like sit there and absorb and find new details in and constantly find new discovery. Do you do, um, do you guys do streaming services? Yep. We do. We've got a, a, a large majority of the catalog is up on, you know, all of the predominant streaming sure. sites. What are your thoughts on those? Do they have a place? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're I, I, I see them as a tool of convenience. I mean, I use, right. right. I use Apple music. Some, mm-hmm. Me you too. know, there, there are times when it's useful. Um, it's, it doesn't replace, records but it it's it's something it, it i think it does serve a purpose yeah like like band like i, like I love band camp mm-hmm. uh, you know band camp's this weird thing that seems strikes me as a you know a hybrid between uh like a, like a record store and a streaming service all at the same time so that's a good point yeah i've never heard it said that way that is a good point yeah i love band camp i mean band camp for me just kind of swooped in and saved the day back in um, 2010 is when we started it. And it was like, nobody, nobody was really offering a way to sell a digital file back then. It was, di- it was quite difficult. Actually, you had to buy a plugin and then a couple different services. And so they kind of swooped in and, and saved the day. Yeah, and so it's so user-friendly, both on the label side, both on the artist side, both on the user side and the buyer side. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great service. Yeah. I think it's really cool. Um, what about, um, you know, I know that you, you know, starting in college and, and, and you were running the label on the side in college. Uh, what about college radio for, for your labels? Is that something that you, um, give any attention to? Do you reach out to the colleges? I could do a better job than I do. Radio radio is one thing that I have to admit is an overall deficiency for me. It's just, yeah, it's one of those things that hits upon the limitations of the label being a person. Yeah. I, I have a very tight relationship with my friends at WXDU, the place that the radio station at Duke, my old, my old undergrad alma mater. Sure. We have, and we have a, a, a long tie and they've got copies of the entire they're one of the only two radio stations that has the entire catalog in physical format in some wow. fashion. That them and WFMU, and uh, it's just more because I, you know, I I know the people and everything else. But you know, like if any time people get in touch with me from radio, I'm happy to help. You know, I just have to figure out what makes the most sense for what they need. Like, you know, are they a station that has just a big digital archive and wants a bunch of digital files? Then it's easy for me to drop the entire library on them, you know, mm-hmm. in one email. And I'm happy to do that. If it's physical stuff, you know, we've got to work through what, what exists and what doesn't anymore, what's still in stock and you know, what, what can make sense. Right. Um, I'm, I'm happy to work with folks and try to populate libraries. Unfortunately, that sometimes does involve people asking me <laughs> rather than me proactively reaching right. out to 
I'm yeah. Curious. No, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of curious with that. I, it's something I <clears throat> kind of, my generation, um, you know, like, like we've been talking about really kind of got into music discovery online and, and, um, I didn't, to be honest, I mean, I listened to the radio a lot and I had tapes growing up and CDs growing up and I, I, the record store played a huge role for me, but music discovery didn't really happen on the radio. I didn't grow up in a college town either. So maybe that was why. So I, I find it hard to kind of track back. And, and now that those college radios are still there, they're still thriving. They're not really going anywhere. Um, I find it hard to, to, um, really give it the attention it deserves. I mean, I'm so, I'm so tied in with the people at X, at WXDU that I'm always, I'm always pretty aware of what they have going on, hmm. but you know, it's places where I just may not know people as well. It's kind of hard. That's to- true. Yeah. Um, you know, on, on this thread, we've talked about, um, you know, with, with you being a one man show and, and, and only having so much time when it comes to having a record done or nearly done, like, how do you rank, like, what do you prioritize when it comes to publicity or marketing the label or social media, retail or radio? What, what takes, um, priority? I mean, that's really kind of a a title by title. Okay. Thing. I mean, some, some records make more sense for print. Some records make more sense for websites. And it's, there's not a one size fits all approach, especially when you're dealing with, you know, a smaller team of folks, you Mm. know, me, (laughs) Um, and, 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 you know, smaller, you know, you don't, you can throw money at every single thing and cover everything the exact same way, but it may not make sense to promote a record that's an addition of 500 with the same way you would, that's an unlimited edition. So, you know, it really kind of is a, you got to, you got to, it fits each different title and you know, different, different artists have different built in audiences in different spheres versus others. Sure. I don't know. I, I, I hope that's not like a cop out answer. No, no, but it's, no, no. I, I, and well, I know it's a big question. I, I, I don't know. Um, I don't think there's a one size. Fits you're right. All. I think you're right. I, I definitely think you're right. Um, your audience, I mean, you must know your audience fairly well when, when you're kind of curating your, your products. Um, how do you communicate with your fans? Cause there's obviously fans of, of the label, not just the, the band, but the bands and the artists, but there are fans of three lobe. Um, what channels work best for you to, to get news out to them? And, um, I have a, you know, this is probably more of a product of my age and archaicness than anything else, but I have a. <laughs> You know, I have a pretty robust like email mailing list sure. that I send stuff out to. You know, historically has been pretty much like clockwork monthly. The last year, I had a couple of little hiccups along the way, uh, just some life junk going on. But you right. know, I, I try to send out an update pretty monthly. Um, you know, I I will use the record label Twitter account. I'll use a record label Instagram account and Facebook account. I don't. I don't particularly like Facebook as yeah. a product yeah. and I, but it's more of a necessary evil. I probably wouldn't even have a personal Facebook account if I didn't need one Agreed. to tie into the record label account. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you there, but you know, I will, you know, but it's kind of a, it's kind of one of those things where, you know, I see more engagement happen with the stuff on Facebook than I do on Twitter or other things. And it kind of, eh, I mean, it is what it is. Yeah. I, I will cross populate these things to all of these places. Um, 
but you know, beyond the, you know, my, the stuff I mentioned, that's about what I do on, you know, tooting the label's own horn. Sure. Well, the, the email list is, I've been hearing a lot of people talking recently about the importance of email lists, just based on the fact that you can't trust what Facebook is going to do or how Twitter's going to change their algorithms or Instagram. Good point. You know, email is yours and there's, and you send that email and they either subscribe or they unsubscribe. Yeah. They either read it or they don't. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, listen, I won't take up any more of your time. I mean, presumably people listening to this podcast, um, aside from my mom are kind of running like small (laughs) record label. Hopefully, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I imagine a lot of people are running a, s- a small record label or starting up a new label or, or thinking about a label or, or you know, um, looking back over the past 18 years, what would you want to tell these people who are just starting up? Put stuff out that you're personally invested in and it feels less like a job. It's more of a pleasure hmm. and, you know, not, I don't feel like I've ended up in a place where I've done things that. I thought I was trying to do a cash grab on or anything else. I feel Uh, like I have, you know, kind of been along those lines, but I think that's a way to kind of keep yourself invested in what's coming out and invested in in the process. Um, Mm -hmm. Don't be afraid to ask people who are in, who have been doing the smaller labels, how to do certain things and ask for advice. Like Mm I, I didn't have a ton of people who, I really knew to ask questions to back when I started things. I thought it was kind of stumbling around in the dark until I figured out what made the most sense. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at to the degree my schedule permits helping, helping people, you know, with some pointers and tips and things like that on things and mm. you know, you find, find people to chat with and, uh, you know, just get, get some different opinions on different parts of the process. Um, that's great. Uh, distribution is tough, you know, do the best you can to find good distribution. Cause that without that, you're, you're, you're kind of in a, you've got a little more of a challenge. Right. Do you think that there's just on that note of distribution, it is, can you put a record in a store and, and, and hope that it, it sells if it's not like a local record, like you can ship a record on the other side of the country. If that band isn't touring, like is there any merit to doing that? I think, I mean, I think you can, because I do <laughs> uh, a lot of That's the great. stuff, a lot of the stuff that I release are for people who don't tour much or at all, or, you know, are kind of like sometimes weird studio projects yeah. more than more than like active touring projects. I mean, you know, the gun Trasinski duo, I just put that record out in November yeah. And, and it has sold very well. I mean, I know that Steve's got a, you know, Steve has a cachet and a following, but those guys have played five shows in the last three or four years. So, I mean, hmm. wow. they, they don't, they don't, they don't play a ton. And, you know, part of that's Steve's schedule. Um, and I know they really enjoy John and Steve really enjoy doing that stuff when the time works out, but it's just, you know, that's not the, how they're spending most of their time, but the record still finds an audience. And I mean, I don't think it has to be, you know, clearly project that tours a lot may have give you more opportunities to do some kinds of sales due to that. But I don't think it's necessarily the entire 
um, be all end all of sales potential. Sure. And are they on like, so that record would be that you released in November that would be available in most indie record stores in America. Yeah. Anyone who's interested in that type of music and, you know, if, if it's someone who has a following for Steve's records on like Matador or Paradise of Bachelors or stuff that I've done otherwise, you know, if they've got people there who who like Steve, like they're probably going to want that. Right. Yeah. No, that's true. That's really interesting. I mean, that's something I'm kind of, you know, it's like, in a way it's really safe to do a digital only release, but sure. on the other hand, you know, taking that risk could pay off of doing a, yeah. you know, printed release and yeah, I just, to me, online only stuff sometimes can have the possibility of sometimes feeling like a, like a second class release. I don't know. Yeah, I, no, that's fair. I, I hear I, you. So sometimes with the writers and with lots of part, you know, it's, I don't know. It's yeah, definitely online. Yeah, you know, definitely digital stuff only exists, but I think that you can get a little more attention on a project if it's, you know, locked down in some fashion. I don't know. I, and, that, yep. and that, I don't think I'm just saying that from my bias towards physical media, but I, I think, I, I think you're right. And I actually remember back in the uh, late nineties when a band had a CD, I've always thought about this, but when a band had a CD back in the late nineties, it meant that they were serious. And I, I mean, when I was in high school, I only knew two, I was in high school in the mid nineties and I only knew two people in my life that had their, a CD out. Now I know five people who are putting a CD out this month. You know what I mean? So, sure. so I, I think that that has kind of, but then the CDRs happened and then everybody could do a CD. And so then it lost that mystique. Whereas, whereas now it's kind sure. of moved to vinyl. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, and, and the cost of vinyl indicates that you have a certain level of a uh, skin in the game. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's right. And I, that is very interesting. I think about that a lot. That's a good point. All right. Listen, I, I won't take up much of your time. I, I know you've, you've probably got, uh, some uh, big business to do there and, and <laughs> <laughs> i hope you don't get in trouble for doing this interview <laughs> no, i'm good i'm good that's great well thanks very much I, I really appreciate it um i love i love the work that you're doing i have so much uh respect for for you and and the 18 years that you put into this and the, the point that you brought up in that in that very last question ab about advice and about how <clears throat> to reach out to um, more established labels or labels who have, have had, had success or, or failures that they can share with other people. Um, you know, that's, uh, that's just evident in the fact that you're willing to come on here and, and answer some questions. So I really appreciate that. You're very kind. Thank you. And thank you all for listening again. Um, we've got so many great episodes coming up. Uh, such a pleasure to have Corey on today and hope you really enjoyed it. Um, if you are enjoying the podcast, um, I have no intention of stopping, but I could really use your help in in getting the word out. So feel free to to tweet about it, to share it with your industry friends, um, to post it on Reddit, to uh, post it on your Facebook, whatever um, really helps. All that kind of stuff helps. And subscribing, of course, helps on whatever platform you listen. Leave a comment, leave a rating. Um, but thanks again, everyone. 
And uh, feel free to reach out podcast at otherrecordlabels.com. Here's a sneaky thing you could do. Um, we're hoping, we're reaching out to a lot of record labels over the next couple of months and doing more interviews. And uh, feel free to contact some of the labels that you like and say, hey, get on this podcast because I'm just a nobody contacting them and and uh, they're, uh, they really enjoy ignoring me. So um, maybe they'll, uh, maybe they'll listen to you. Thanks for listening. <laughs>